There's a beautiful story in the book of John that I want to read to you and, and kind of illustrate what I mean. Jesus has died and Jesus has risen and it's the morning of Easter and Mary is at the tomb trying to figure out what's happened to Jesus' body and she's distraught because it's gone and she starts crying. It's Mary Magdalene because he's nowhere to be found. And in the midst of all that, here's what happens. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know what it was. She did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet, so I'm assuming she grabbed onto him real hard. I think that's what we're, we're seeing. Jesus says, hold on, Mary. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. It's verse 17 of this passage that, that really reverberates with my heart this morning that I want to bring to you all. And Jesus says to Mary, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Listen, you can look throughout the whole gospel of John. You will never see Jesus talking like that about his people, about his disciples until this moment. This is the first moment in the book of John where he speaks to his disciples as his brothers. Something incredible happened at the, the, the crucifixion and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection did much more than purchase forgiveness for us. It purchased familyhood for us. That's why Jesus says, makes such a point to say to her, Mary, go tell my brothers. He never says that in John until this moment. Go tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and he looks at you and your father. My father and your father. And Jesus, I, I just imagine him, I don't think it's too far-fetched to consider that Jesus was bursting with the deepest joy to say to Mary in effect, Mary, you are now my family. We are family now. Yes, I am God. Yes, I am Lord. Yes, I am master. Yes, I am king. But you're my sister. I'm your brother. Like, not figuratively, not metaphorically. No, more deeply than than your siblings are to you, 
or the sibling you wish you'd had that you don't have if you're an only child. Jesus is saying, I'm that. And that's what you are to me. I'm your brother. You're my sister. You're my brother. And I'm going to my father now. And all this I've been saying about my father for three years, it's your father. In the same way, he's your father now. That's what Jesus did. You aren't only my disciples, you're my very brothers and my very sisters. And that is what we are in truth with one another. We're brothers and sisters. And, and God means us, and it will take this lifetime and eternity, but he means us to experience all the intimacy and all the security and all the solidarity and all the care and all the devotion that, that is meant to convey that those terms are meant to convey brothers and sisters in a way that deep down, even against our own experiences with our own families, we know that's what it's meant to convey, right? Like that's, what it, that's why it, those relationships can get so painful. That's why our hard relationships with parents are triply hard. Hard relationships with singles, with, with sisters and brothers are triply hard because it's just, you know deep down inside, it's not supposed to be like this. And when they go wrong, it really goes wrong. But Jesus has a plan for us to become brothers and sisters in a way that is redeemed, is what he meant at the start, is what we feel deep down inside we're supposed to have, we're meant to have in brothers and sisters. That's what he purchased for us by his blood. His people rich and poor, up here in the social stratosphere, down here in the social stratosphere, Jew and Gentile, black and white, obscured, even by family, by family. So I'm gonna try to unpack that a little bit today and ask God to help us and also do that without spending an hour doing that <laughs> so that we can go eat. Would you pray with me right now as I try to finish this message? Lord, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to help now. Would you please make this beautiful to us? Make this attractive to us? Would you please protect it from being a chore? Because that's demeaning to you and demeaning to your good plan for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> when I think about trying to explain what I'm hoping to get at with this, it's different. I, I think about Jesus in a fake scenario saying something like this to Mary. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. <clears throat> but go tell my disciples that they should act like brothers now. Mary, you're supposed to be my sister, you know? Act like my brother for crying out loud. I died and rose so that you'd start acting like my brother for once. Like that's not the sentiment here. That's not the spirit here. It's look what I did. Look what we are now. It's true. It's really true. <clears throat> if I was to ask you guys, um, 
with regard to the people you see in this room, what is the clearest and most basic and most fundamental command in the New Testament? Yeah, love one another, right? Love one another. And there's a whole range of what that can look like in our minds. We can bring a lot of baggage into that, a lot of expectation into that. But what's really great is that the Bible defines that for us again and again and again. I mean, when you read the epistles, whether it's Galatians or 1 Corinthians or Romans, you won't go far before you start seeing Paul or Peter or James start to really explain what that means. And classically, in a lot of churches, you've heard it as the one another's, right? We've talked about that in this church, one another's, the one another's. These commandments over and over again, it's legendary all the time. One another, each other, one another, each other. And there is a big list. And this is not exhaustive, but I could just throw a few at you. Of, of these pictures that the spirit gives us through the apostles of what does he mean when he says love each other? What does he mean? He means be devoted to one another. Romans 12, 10. Wow, be devoted. That's heavy. There's another one, Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. That's what it means to love. Mourn with one another. There's going to be times to just cry and grieve and be sad. Not correct or rebuke or exhort. We'll get to that. But there are times where you just have to mourn and grieve. That's how you're going to love. Other times, you're just going to comfort. You're going to bring comfort. It's time to, to process through that grief and bring to comfort. Bring some hope. Bring some comfort. We're told to gently and patiently be long-suffering with another, with one another, to forbear, to put up with each other's weaknesses. We all have these things that are just hangers-on of the old flesh or hangers-on of just being a weak person. Like stuff in our life that's kind of like that microphone that almost every other Sunday doesn't work. <laughs> How many of you have thought to yourselves, if that mic doesn't work this Sunday, I'm done with this church? Well, I'm not saying that, Josh, you're probably feeling horrible right now. <laughs> Josh. But God calls us to be long-suffering with, with weaknesses, and, and that's not Josh's weakness. Ultimately, it's, it goes back to, if it goes back to anybody, it probably goes back to me. How do I get out of this hole I've dug myself into? Jesus calls us to be tender-hearted and forgiving towards one another. He says loving each other means tenderness. Tenderness. He says, for love's sake, tell each other the truth about Christ. That's in Ephesians 4. But speaking the truth in love, we build one another up into Christ. And the context there is telling each other about Jesus again and again and again. That's how we love one another. We tell each other about Jesus. Not just about the Bills beating Miami today. Not just about how good you know, how bad the last Star Wars movie was and who could have done a better job with that franchise. Those are fun things. But, if, but no, no, no. Here's what we're really going to love each other with. We're going to talk to each other about Jesus. We're not going to leave him out. We're not going to compartmentalize him to Sundays. And we're told that loving each other means to spur one another on to love and to doing good. To say, hey, let's do this thing together. Or, hey, God, help me do this thing. What do you think? I mean, that's tricky, right? It can sound boasty. 
But we're called to spur one another on to good deeds. Hey, that's a good work. I think you should go for it. I think God will be with you. That's what love looks like in Hebrews 10, 24. To not neglect meeting with one another. That's a very basic idea that goes through all these, right? You can't love and forgive and forbear and build up and be sympathetic with people you don't spend any time with. So that's really central in Hebrews 10, 24. Don't stop coming together. Keep being together. James 5, 16, I love this. Confess your sins to one another. I don't think this is a Catholic precept that we can only be forgiven through the mediation of a human being going to a priest or going to a person. I think this is an invitation to this beautiful reality that there are people in our lives that are close to us that we can come to and say, man, I did something really ugly. And I hate that, but I don't feel free. Can I just tell you about it? And they say, yes, you tell me. And you tell them. And then they say, brother, you are forgiven. Sister, you are forgiven. And they pray over you. And you just feel different. You just feel different, right? Haven't you all experienced that? Like you're in a group with a couple of guys or couple of ladies and you said something or did something and you just can't get it off and then God gives this grace by being able to say it to somebody in the flesh see him and say I did this thing oh I really screwed up and they say God forgives you it's okay it's okay oh I love that grace to confess our sins to one another to pray for each other and find healing through prayer I called Michael last night just feeling so weary this week with this thing, you know? My stomach felt better, but still just, ugh. And he prayed over me over the phone. It doesn't always happen like this, but it happened last night. I got off the phone and I was just different. I was just different. I had energy. I have, I'm different this morning. I barely got any sleep last night because I couldn't fall asleep, but I don't feel what I felt this last week. And that changed when Michael prayed for me. So we're called to do that. That's loving each other. Romans 15, 14 says to be ready to counsel one another. We've learned things. And, and when we find out what each other is going through, there are times where it's, it's right to say, can I offer you this? Do you mind if I tell you a story? Here's what I'm seeing. That's, that's what loving each other means. That's what it goes beyond just that word love. It looks like this. It looks like Galatians 6, 1, helping one another out of sin with gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness, restoring each other. We see somebody just, just they're blowing it, you know? They're, they're walking away from God. There's a hardness going on. I, and with gentleness, we prayerfully and fearfully go, Lord, please help me communicate love to this person. Please help me build this bridge and make sure they know I love them and that, that I mess up too. But I can't let them keep going. I gotta say something. The way he's talking to his wife he needs to know that's not leadership, right? I got to say something, but how can I make sure that he hears it as love from a fellow struggler? So we're called to do that, to not let each other go. Build one another up with words from God. 1 Corinthians 14, 3, 13. 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Paul's talking about this gift of prophecy where God puts words on your heart for others. He wants the whole church, he says, to be able to do that. He's saying, pray that you all might be able to bring each other words from God. And that might be scripture that God just put on your heart to bring to somebody. It might be something 
prophetic that you really feel like the Holy Spirit is saying about a specific circumstance in their life. But God has that for us. He wants all of us to be able to do that. And the whole point, Paul says, he takes a whole chapter before he says that. He takes a whole chapter to explain the whole point is so that you can love each other. That's what the whole gift of prophecy is about. It's not about being a magician, seeing the future, or knowing all perfect things and being exalted. It's so you can love people. So you can help them and care for them. That's what loving each other looks like. Oh, showing hospitality, 1 Peter 4, 9. Bring him over to your house. Some of us are better than this than others. But, but we're called to share our homes, share our wallet, have them over for lunch. Spend time with each other again. Make them a meal. We're called to share our goods with each other when in need. Maybe you have a car that you don't need. Maybe you have a, a bike or a clothes that, that you don't need. And you know that Dorcas could use them. You know that somebody in the church could use them. Some of you guys, have, one of the things I love about this little church, people in this church have gotten cars for each other. <laughs> It's just amazing. The kind of generosity I've seen in people like Josh Trout. I got you on the, you know, implicitly on the mic. You probably feel guilty about that, so no, I'm gonna, you didn't ask for that either. But I know you've done some crazy stuff for people, Josh. We're called to admonish one another. And that's really uncomfortable. But it's for the sake of love. Like, we need it. We need people to, Admonish. That means to sometimes there is that correction time. That's a call on our lives. That's how you love. We're called to teach one another. Ephesians 4.25, just, just be honest with each other. That's how you love. Just be real. Don't pretend. Don't fake it. Hebrews 3.13, very powerful exhortation. Exhort one another each day. Other, other translations say warn each other, exhort each other, encourage each other. But the heft of that whole section, Hebrews 3.13, is that, listen, our faith on this earth is in process and it's vulnerable. And, and it can, God will see that his own make it to the end. But from an earthly point of view, people can fall. And they can walk away from Jesus. And so there's this massive exhortation in Hebrews 4 that says, hey, don't let that happen to one another. Don't let each other walk away from Jesus. Don't let that happen. Slow or fast. Cold or hot. Don't let them go. If you have to, warn them. But what's the point? It's love. That's what love means. Cain cynically, rhetorically said to God when, when God said, where's Abel? Where's your brother? He said, am I my brother's keeper? And today Jesus says, somewhat. <laughs> yeah. You bear some responsibility to watch over each other. Of course, we're called to rejoice with one another. We're called to sing to one another. We can't paint this whole thing as this accountability church, you know, where all we do is try to figure out where are you going wrong? And I'm gonna, some of that is okay. It's a piece of the pie, but it can't be the whole pie. That's why we're called to comfort and rejoice and to celebrate and to encourage. Do you know who you are in Jesus? 
Do you know who, who, who loves you more than anybody? Do you know who's not gonna give up on you? I love that. I love being able to, I don't do it enough, but I love being able to catch my kids doing something good and just be able to say, buddy, look at what you're doing. You're keeping your commitments. That's awesome. That's hard to go to soccer again or to go to Boy Scouts again. It's not always easy, but I'm so proud of you that you're doing that. We need to do that with each other. I see God at work in you. I see these, we used to call them evidences of grace. It's a fine phrase. I see God at work in these gracious ways. So what do the one another's tell us about a church, right? What do they tell us a church is? Maybe it's easier to start with, what do they tell us a church isn't? Like, what do they tell us a church is not? These one another's, they tell us a church is not a building. Right? They tell us a church is not an event. Like, what time is church? Or church was awesome today. Or church was weird today. Or the music was better this week at church. That's all okay, but that's not church. That's event-centered language. That's acting like church is something that happens to you once a week. Church is something that I come and sit and consume. Like a TV show. That's not church. That's something that happens. It's part of what happens in a, in a church is there are pre, there's preaching, there's pre, pre, prophecy and prayer and praise, but... Church is not an event or a building. The New Testament knows nothing of that kind of concept that's so familiar to us. 1 Timothy 3, Timothy's talking to, well, Paul's talking to Timothy. He says, if I delay, I've told you all this stuff that I've just told you that I'm not gonna go over. He says, if I delay, I've told you all this stuff so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Whoa! <laughs> what is the church? What is this little thing that we're trying to be together that God has made us rather? It's the household of the living God. And it's a pillar, it's a buttress for the truth. In other words, the church is a, like a support beam. It's like a podium. It's like, what do we call this? No, 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 this thing, this big, huge wooden thing right here. Pulpit. Pulpit, right? You put a big, giant Bible, 500-pound Bible in a pulpit in some of these churches, and you walk in, it's right up there, right? Or you see the Lord's table in a church, and it says, what does it say? Do this in memory of me, the beautiful cloth they'll put, and they'll embroider it with those words, big, huge words. Do this in memory of me. That table, that pulpit, it is holding up the truth of the blood and body of Christ and of the, the word of God. That's what the church is. He says it's a support beam. It's a pillar so that people can see the truth about God, that it can be protected and lifted aloft so that we can see it and hold on to it and call others to it. That's what the church is to be. That's why we preach. That's why we try to teach each other about God so that we can hold them up to each other and we can hold them up to the world around us. 
We see so many passages that make it clear that the church has this unique function, this crucial purpose to preserve the spiritual health of its members. It's a crucial purpose, not just an event or a time on a Sunday, but a church is a community where God's people are kept safe. That's what it's supposed to be, right? And I know how it can often go. And some of you know better than me that that's not always how it goes, but that's what it's supposed to be. Even the harsher pictures we see about some church aspects of church life, these sobering pictures like Matthew 18, where the church has this, Jesus gives this, this commandment that when someone is in real serious sin, you go to them privately. And if they don't repent, then you take a brother or sister with you and, and rebuke them again and call them to repentance. And if they don't repent, then you go and you tell it to people in the, the whole church. And then the church comes to them and says, repent. And if they don't repent, what do you do? You kick them out of the church, hopefully temporarily. What's that all about? What's that all about? That sounds so rough. Well, if you look at Matthew 18 and you look at the other parables surrounding that commandment, it's all about redeeming that person. Matthew 18 talks about going after the one. It talks about the, I, I believe, and you, you guys can come back to me, come back at me, but, but that whole chapter is filled with redemption themes about the lost coin and the lost sheep and the unmerciful servant who wouldn't forgive what his master would forgive. And, and Peter's saying, how, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times seven? That's a lot, right? Or, or, you know, should I forgive him seven times? That's a lot. That's more than the Pharisees will do. Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, infinite amount of forgiveness. You forgive him again and again and again. That's where that church discipline commandment occurs. It's this whole theme of grabbing onto people that are falling away from Jesus and bringing them back so they can be restored and they can be forgiven and they can be built up. That doesn't sound like an event, does it? That doesn't sound like a show you go to. It doesn't sound like something you just show up to once a week. Yes, it's a, it's a sobering reality in the life of the church. But those are emergency guardrails that tell us something crucial about what the church is. It's to be a community where we help each other stay with Jesus. Where we, not just the pastor, though I have a responsibility that's particular, but we all together help each other stay with Jesus. These words that God uses when he talks about the church are so much heavier than the way we often use these words, right? When we talk about going to church on Sunday. And I'm not rebuking that. Like, that's okay. I use that language. What time's church? Where do you go to church? Like, we don't have to stop doing that. I don't want to be word policey about that. But we need to know that that's the smallest little aspect, really, of what the word means to God. To God, the word church means called out ones. Literally, the, the Greek is called out. Ecclesia. Ek, out. Ecclesia, the other part. 
but it does mean that. It means called out ones. Called out of the world, but not just called out, called together into. Called together into God, together. But, but, but the idea of church becomes much more intimate than that. The church is called the bride of Christ. That's not a metaphor. Our marriages are the metaphor. That's the reality. When Jesus says, I'm married to you, when Jesus says, I'm your husband redeemer, he, he's not saying, it's almost like I'm your husband. No, 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 no. He's saying, Jen, Albert's is like this really poorly written poem about what I am. He's a really, really broken and crude image of what I really am that you long in your heart for Albert to be. That's what I really am. I, I'm the real husband. Your husband is just, he's in a play really trying to walk out that role. But the real husband, it's me. When Jesus says he's your husband redeemer, he means it. When he says that we're married to him and that we're in a marriage with him, he means it. We're the bride of Christ. Think of the unity an ideal marriage is to have in your mind. Like the biblical picture of a husband and wife becoming one. No longer two, but one person. No longer two, but one person. That's what God has for us in our marriage to Jesus. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, whoever is in Christ Jesus is one spirit with him. Sometimes we taste that. Sometimes we, we can feel that deep in our hearts. Other times we just, we groan for that final day when that oneness will be completely perfected. But that's what we are now. We're already one with him. That's how he looks at you. You're one with me. In Jesus' heart, he's more committed to you than the best husband in the world is committed to his wife. There are some great husbands. There are some terrible husbands in this world. There are some amazing husbands. And none of them are as committed to their wives as Jesus is committed to you. We're God's family. Again, we're the household of God. When you think about a household, you think about a father and his children, parents and their kids. When you think about how kids are supposed to be nourished and protected and taught and provided for by their parents. That's what he says we are, his household. Where he nourishes and protects and teaches and provides for his sons and daughters for his kiddos. That's what a church is. And I know, again, that that's not always how it feels. That's not always our experience, but that's his intention. That's what he is doing, and that's what he will bring to perfection. That's what he's calling us to now. But... but What I, what I want us to see is that we would, we would never think of these pictures of marriage and family and associate them with the way we often think of church as an event or this thing that happens, this thing that people go to that we're trying to figure out whether we're into it or not or how much we want to do or give or maybe there's 
there's, this is an okay church, but there's, maybe there's other churches really better. And, and listen, there are good reasons to leave churches. Like, don't, I don't want to turn this into, remember what I said earlier, this is not to be a, you better. You know, I, God has really grown me. I'm so grateful. I'm not all the way there, but I feel so much freer from the get people at my church and get people to stay at my church. This identity that I've, I've struggled with for years as a pastor to judge myself and to judge people by, you know, these superficial realities of whether there are numbers or anything like that. That's still a struggle for me, but God has done good work in me. I remember months ago just being exhausted with that and praying down here in the middle. You guys didn't even know, but we're in the middle of church and I'm like realizing that I've just seen like fewer people than I want come in on a Sunday. And I'm bummed out by that. And I'm just so sick of that. So I'm getting down here during worship and I'm praying, God, please get this off of me. Disgusting, gross thing of trying to get people in my church for, for, for my sense of security or self-worth or whatever. It's satanic. And I hate it. And God like, was like, okay, I'll give you some sauce. <laughs> he didn't finish, but he's like, here's a little bit. Here's a little bit of grace sprinkle and I just was a little bit freer and I've never quite been the same. And I'm, I'd be sad to see, you know, any one of you guys who are part of our church leave, but I would be happy if it was, I believe there's a part, I would just be happy to know that you're going somewhere where God's gonna feed you a little bit better and you're gonna be used a little bit better and he's got a different plan for you and I can rejoice in that. And we don't have to spend, you know, five weeks of meetings to try to figure out whether your motives are right or not or all that stuff, you know? I might ask you some questions to care for you, but I just don't feel as bound as I, I used to. By his grace, could all change tomorrow. My ministry empire, you know? It's gross, though, and I know that. Why did I go there? <laughs> My point is this, <laughs> that when we think about a church as the household of God, as our father, and we're his sons and daughters here, or as the bride of Christ that we're married to, it's so different than the way we think of it so often. Who would ever say to their spouse, hey, what time is marriage? Who would ever say to their sister and brother, hey, how did you like brotherhood yesterday? Wasn't that awesome? Or how was, how was family yesterday? How did family go? Like, it, it wouldn't make any sense. Are you going to marriage tomorrow? <laughs> it, even if we knew what the question meant, it would imply such a backwards and superficial understanding of marriage and family that we'd either laugh or feel insulted or both. Like, what are you talking about? What time is marriage, you jerk? <laughs> now, of course, I, again, don't hear, this isn't word police. There's a proper way to say what time is church and where do you go to church. We know what we mean when we say that. And church life includes rhythms that make sense out of language like that. But I, I, I want you to see, I want these concepts of marriage and family, these identities that God has given us to define the church in your heart and my heart more deeply than things like buildings or weekly events, or numbers, or budgets, that we're really a family. Locally, we're a family, and we're a family with Home Church, and Mountain View, and Strong Tower, and El Shaddai, and 
that the identity is that of family and marriage. God's given us an identity that calls us to, to, to see the deepest realities of, of the worth of, of being God's people. And those words, family and marriage, they call us to intimate relationship. They call us to faithfulness. They call us to honesty, care, protection, provision, and commitment. Isn't that what you'd want your family to be like, your, your marriage to be like? And in short, listen, here's the magic. Woo, here I'm gonna do some magic. That's what the one another's describe, right? Like, like if you think about the one another's, who wouldn't love it if they could say about their marriage or their their they're growing up with their parents. What were, what were your parents like? They were devoted to one another in love and they were devoted to us. They bore my burdens as a kid. They, they mourned with me. What's your husband like? He regards me as more important than myself. He comforts me. He gently and patiently is long suffering with me. What was your mom like? Oh, she was kind and tender hearted, forgiving towards me. What was your dad like? Oh, he spurred me on to love people and to do good. He, he didn't neglect me. He didn't neglect getting together with me and talking with me. What's your wife like? You know, she's somebody that sometimes I can confess the worst things to her and she still forgives me. And she prays for me fervently and she brings me good counsel and she helps me out of my sin with a gentle spirit. What's your husband's like? Oh, he, he serves me in a loving way. He builds me up with words from God. He cooks for me sometimes. He shows me hospitality. These one another's, they're the words we would all just rejoice if these described our families and our marriages. And I don't think that's an accident. They're family words. Their family goals, their family commands, their family realities. Who wouldn't want a family like that? And in fact, nobody would say, that's so weird, <laughs> right? That's, ew, that's weird. You would confess your sins to your mom and she'd pray for you? Psycho. Like, no one would say that. They'd say, oh my gosh, I would love it if I could just bring all my junk to my mom and tell her and she would pray over me. That'd be so great. <laughs> right? No one's like, that's weird. They're like, oh, that's it. That's what family should be. The church is to be that family. Each of us should have relationships in the church that really feel like family. We can't feel like family with everybody, even a church this small. It's hard. Jesus Loved all his disciples, and yet there was one disciple whom he loved. John says that again and again, and I think what John is saying is that, you know, Jesus, as a human, he had some really close buddies, and I think I was maybe the closest, but he loved us all. He loved us all, but he had a sense of humor, and I had a sense of humor, and it just clicked. I don't know. I, I just, I'm reading into that, but... I'm just trying to say that I'm not calling you today to spend equal amounts of time and give equal emotional weight to an investment to every single person in this church. It's not possible. But there have to be some people with whom it feels like home. It should be, rather. It, it should be. When I say there has to be, it must be. I'm saying, Lord, let it be. 
Like this should be a place where everyone, we put this in the DR document, everyone is loving someone faithfully and everyone is being loved by someone faithfully. That's the discipleship group training motto at the top that our church will be a place where everyone is being loved by somebody faithfully and everyone is loving someone faithfully. There are ways that this is hard for us, right? There's stuff that we've walked into in the past that's kicked our butts emotionally and we're still recovering. There are people in the church, just like in our families, where, ah, Lord, give me grace to love. Give me grace to be patient. They're just so different than us. They come from such a different place. There's different levels of maturity. There just are. The irony is (laughs) that the sign of the greatest maturity is are those who can be fine with immaturity. Isn't that funny? We we recognize immature people. We're like, oh, they're so immature. God's like, duh. Cat pointing the whatever the phrase is. Cat calling the kettle black. Yeah. And the reality is, the most mature people are able to forbear with the least mature people. Right? You all know that. There are unresolved tensions that we let go that we don't resolve and they just kind of settle into a colder state. There's, there can even be uh, neglect. We know some people might need care and we're just, we're just letting a, a kind of a fleshly irritation with that person keep us from the care that God's called us to give them. Those things happen in churches all the time. So God gives us these one another, says, hey, Come back to these things. You're a family. This is a marriage. But I think maybe the greatest danger as I processed this and prayed over this like, is that it's just hard for us to really perceive the meaning and the beauty and the weight of what we really are. Like It's just hard for us to really perceive the beauty and the weight of of what God's really called us, what he really sees us as and how we're called to be, what we are. Like, it's just hard for us to see it, that we're really called to be a means of, of, listen, we're really called to be a means. God really intends for you to be a way that I am able to see and enjoy and experience Jesus. And I am to be that for you. That, that you're really called to be used by God to help me not forget his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his long-sufferingness, his faithfulness. And I'm called to do that for you. And in more sobering, you are really called to be used by God to help me make it safe into his arms on the last day. You are really called to, to, to help me not become cold and unbelieving to the holy God who saved me. And I'm called to do that for you. That's what it means to be a family of the living God. Not simply flesh and blood, but a family born of the living God. 
It's hard for us to see that and to keep that in front of us. But that's what we're really called to be. And I really need to correct that because that's a really bad way to think of it. It's not simply what we're called to be. I think a lot of fruit is to be gained by realizing that is what we are already. Right? I'm already changing the John 21 moment with Mary subtly and with a smile from go tell my brothers to go tell them to be like my brothers. It doesn't start with go tell them to be like my brothers. It starts with they're my brothers now. Rejoice. He's our father. He's my father and now he's your father. It's already true. We don't have to work ourselves into it. We don't have to create something that God might bless later. No, we are already brothers and we are already sisters in Christ. We're already family. And all the one another's are just, hey, be who you are already. Be who you are already. It's already true. And, and so, so many of you guys have experienced that, right? Right, like, like how many of you guys have walked into a, um, a barber shop or a grocery store or, or met a waitress or a waiter or, and, and you just talk for a few minutes and you realize, oh, they know Jesus. They love Jesus. We're family. Like you can just tell. I mean, that doesn't happen all the time, but that happens. You just, you just start talking and you realize, Oh, I'm a believer. Are you a believer? Yes, I'm a believer. I love the Lord. <laughs> like, oh, your heart melts. We're family. And they can be from Uganda and you can be from Switzerland. It just doesn't matter. Suddenly you tap into the deepest identity that people can have and you are brother and sister. And it's awesome to experience that. And that's what God does when he changes you. Makes you not just his kid, but family with all of his kids. That's what we are. So that's today. I wanted to just try to refresh in you guys about what we are. What I feel like the Lord wants me to do, and this is tricky, is that next week I want to try to move from this big picture vision to ask you all to consider concrete primers of sorts of how we might walk out these things. I'm going to talk about things like community groups and discipleship groups. And I'm going to stress that these concrete practical realities that, that some of you guys are engaged in, some of you not, that they are optional ways. They're optional ways. God commands you to love one another. He doesn't command you to be part of a discipleship group the way that I've conceived it. That would be a horrible mistake. Some of you maybe don't need to be in a discipleship group right now the way that I've conceived it and shouldn't be the way that I've conceived it. And I want to make sure that's loud and clear. But in going through some of the methodology of, of, of discipleship group and community group, the, the specific structures can change, but these groups run on principles that apply to every spiritual relationship. So even if you don't end up in a, doing a discipleship group this, this next term or a community group, you will hopefully learn or relearn or be excited again about important truths that will speak to how we can walk out one another's with each other. But the bottom line is we're called to be a church of one anothering because we are a family.
And we have people in our midst who are, uh, let's be honest, we, we do have people, I believe, in our midst who are lonelier than they should be. And I think there's so many ways that we're doing wonderful. And there's so many of you guys who are really giving yourselves to each other. But there are still people here who are lonelier than they should be, who are less befriended than they should be. We have people in our midst who, who have more to offer than they know how to offer it. And, and of course, the one another's, and, and I'm landing the plane. Don't worry, we're ending here. The one another's are, are not just for one another. This is where I'm going to end. Jesus promised that as we give ourselves to the call to love each other, the world will see it. He said it would, that, that in our oneness, they would see a witness that God had really sent Jesus. He says that in John 17 and John 13. People who need Jesus will be convicted that Jesus is really who he said he was, not only through the gospel preached, but through the lives of his children lived out between themselves. That's a beautiful call. That's a serious responsibility, but it's there for us. That's what the Holy Spirit makes possible for churches when they pursue these things.